If you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles or in the Blue Pew Bibles in the pew in front of you, we'll be reading James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. It's our New Testament scripture reading. You'll find it on page 1012 if you're using the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Jesus tells us that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but rather what comes out of him, out of his heart. We like to very often emphasize the the physical or outward forms of obedience, and that's not wrong. That's not a bad thing necessarily. But when that becomes everything, all we think about or care about, then we miss out on the fact that Jesus wants your heart. How often when you are teaching children obedience, or when you yourself are trying to combat some sin, You focus only on the outward. Do not touch, do not look at, don't act in this way, etc. But what does James say about quarreling? What causes it? Where does it come from? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire, you covet. That's why you act in these different ways. You have a sinful desire, and then you act on it. It starts in the heart. This is the nature of sin. It goes all the way down. It isn't a matter of only sinning in your actions, doing things that are inconsistent with the character and nature of God. Your desires themselves, your passions, your thoughts, these two must be sanctified right jesus christ did not die for your body alone but for all of you body and soul heart and mind 
Now, just because that's true, just because your, your desires are at war within you, that's not a reason to uh, be discouraged about God's work of sanctification, right? That's not a reason to say, well, then what's the point, right? How I, I, I can't control that, right? Maybe you're thinking, I, I have such strong temptations, passions, or desires. I, I want to do things that I know that Scripture says I shouldn't, that I know that God doesn't want. What am I to do? How can I change? Well, what does James say? God gives more grace, right? God's grace is not limited to some of your actions. God's grace is plentiful and bountiful even to change your desires. His grace is not limited to your hands alone, but also works on your heart. But you need to humble yourself to receive it, submitting to him. And what will happen? What does James talk about? Well, the devil will flee. God will draw near. That's what happens when somebody humbles themselves under him. So cleanse your hands, you sinners, he says. Nothing I'm saying today when we talk about desires of the heart should, should mean, okay, well, it doesn't matter then what I do, right? The, the outward forms of obedience, those don't matter. No, that's not true. The, the point is simply that it goes deeper. But of course, what you do matters. No, cleanse your hands. Act rightly before your God. But what is added to that? What does James also say? Right? Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Hands and heart, both. If you are a Christian, you've trusted in Christ, then the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. You've been given a new heart, and so you are called to purify yourself. Purify your heart. That is to say, all of you, your emotions, your thoughts, your desires, all these parts of you, the things that are deepest, maybe seem the most natural of your feelings, wherever they are at odds with Jesus Christ, they must be submitted to him. You must humble yourself, though. Do not in pride say, well, I can't change those things. Don't say, well, this is so personal, right? It feels so personal, these, these desires, these longings, these passions, and they're so much a part of who I am that I won't change. That is the way of the proud, and God opposes the proud. But humble yourself. Trust that God can and will accomplish his work of sanctification, right? Ask him to. You you do not have because you do not ask. And even when you ask, you're asking for your own selfish gain so that you might spend it on your own desires, he says. Your own passions. No, truly ask and God will answer. Trust in him. Lay hold of the means of grace that he has established. And your very heart will change. It will change. Your very desires and passions will be sanctified.
Hear now the word of God from Exodus chapter 20. This will be our last reading of the Ten Commandments for some time anyway. Um, Not that we will never read it again, but uh, since we've been in it for some time, let me read it for us, uh, starting in verse 1, though we'll be focusing on verse 17 today. Hear the word of our God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. Today we are uh, finishing up the time that we've been spending in the Ten Commandments. Um, As we go through the rest of the year, we'll be focusing on the Lord's Prayer um, outside of the the Christmas season. And then, starting in the new year, my my hope and plan is that we would uh, begin to work through the Gospel of John. And so, as we've uh, spent quite some time in the Ten Commandments up to this point, Uh, Let me remind you that these commands begin with that gospel statement. That's where they begin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God didn't tell the people, clean yourselves up in Egypt and then you can come and be my people. No, he says, "I've, I've taken you out, I've brought you out. You've been baptized in the sea. You've been brought out now to my mountain where you would worship me. And now this is what it looks like to be my people. He brings them out of bondage and then he gives them these words, words of life, meant to form them and form you into that people, into the kind of people that would be his people and you, or in he rather, your God. And the first commandment, was all about 
who you're worshiping, right? The focus is on God. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God, he says. So everything kind of focuses on him. And then, although everything is focused on him, although it's all about worship, although it's all about what it looks like then to be totally and fully surrendered to him, yet as we work through these commandments, there's a kind of movement as it gets closer and closer to you where we come now to the 10th commandment. And the focus is on the heart. The focus is directly on your desires, coveting. God does not just want the obedience of your hands. He wants the obedience of your heart. Outward and inward obedience is what God desires and has called for in you. So even your inward desires, your inward man is to be renewed and changed by the working of God. This is his desire as his people. Now, if you remember uh, back to the first Sunday that we were in the Ten Commandments, I'm sure you do. It was May. It was at the beginning of May. You remember that sermon, right? I'm sure you don't forget sermons from that long ago. I'll just assume you remember, but... uh, On that day, actually it was in the the New Testament reading that we had, we talked about antinomianism and the danger of antinomianism, this kind of soul disorder that says we don't need God's law. We don't need to do anything that God teaches us to do, right? As long as I I love him, it doesn't matter how I live. That's wrong. That, you know, to say, well, we're under grace, which means none of this stuff has anything to do with me. I get to live as I please, do as I please. No, that's not the case at all. That is, again, what we call antinomianism. It's, it, it is a soul disorder. It's still a danger for us. But we also need to be aware of the danger of legalism which in some sense is is just the flip side of antinomianism. Specifically, the kind of legalism that says that outward conformity is all that matters. As long as you look like you are obeying, you are obeying. Cleaning up the outside of the dish, but leaving the inside dirty. Right, kids in here, kids, if you ever have to do the dishes... If you washed a cup, and let's say it had a bunch of milk inside, right? It's very noticeable. There's still milk inside, and you just wash around the outside of the cup. If you took that to your parents and you said, is this clean enough? Is this what you wanted? When you said to clean the dishes, to wash the dishes, is that what you wanted? What would they say? No, of course not, right? You didn't clean the inside. Well, in Jesus' day we have him saying that that's exactly what the legalists did. This is what the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. He calls them whitewashed tombs, right? That they're, they're dead inside, but they've cleaned up the outside. So they look holy. They have the appearance of holiness, but they don't have the real thing. 
visible outward obedience is, of course, not a bad thing. It's necessary. It's good. It's right. You should desire it. Jesus said that your holiness must surpass the scribes and the Pharisees, not, not be less than, right? He didn't say uh, do, do less than they do. He said, actually, it has to surpass theirs. In what way? In that it actually has to go to the heart. Men, imagine that you're the kind of man that, you know, you come to church, you put on a nice shirt, you look the part, you say all the right things, but you go home and you neglect your family. Or when no one's looking, you become a different man, right? As long as you're around people that don't know that you are a Christian, that don't know that you go to church, well, then you can act a different way, right? That, this isn't holiness, Women imagine that, you know, you're the kind of wife that says, well, I want to, uh, you know, obey what God says about being submissive to my own husband. And so you, in many outward ways, try to show that, right? You make a show of it. You try to do things that you think he would like. You try to, to uh, you know, put on a, a demeanor that would make him think that you're submitting. But all the while in your heart, you resent him, right? Or you hate him in some way. You despise him, right? Is that what God wants? course not of course that's not it outward acts of obedience are necessary and right and good and god goes deeper god desires more it penetrates to the heart you shall not covet means that your very desires are to be taken captive to the law of god and changed by him in order that you might be the kind of people that desires what he desires that your heart would be his heart. It's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul specifically points out this commandment as the commandment that brought the law to life and, and in a sense, killed him, bringing sin out into the open in his life. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he said. Right? If anybody could have claimed outward obedience to the law, somebody who's zealous for the law, He's, he would say, that's him, right? That's, he's the guy. And yet, when we read in Romans 7 that he read this commandment, he said all of a sudden it, it showed him his sin. Because it wasn't just about those outward things. There was also the need for his very desires to be changed. The 10th commandment then can take you from being that Pharisee Right? The, the kind of man that would go into the, the temple and pray loudly for all to hear, who would stand on the street corner, who would make known when he was fasting, who would be vocal about his obedience so that everybody would see and everybody would know. It can take you from that man making a show of your righteousness and turn you into being the kind of man that Christ wants, the tax collector who in the temple knows he has nothing to bring and so he falls on his knees he beats his chest and he says lord have mercy on me a sinner and he walks out justified there's a bent in some of you to this kind of legalism right the kind that wants to to make a show of things or wants to uh, do what is really the easy obedience right the easy obedience of just a 
you know, an outward quick change for all to see, but without working on the heart. There's some of you that are tempted toward this kind of legalism, wanting to take credit for the work of God in your life. But what does Jesus tell us? Right? Even when you have done all that you were commanded, what are you to say? Right? What kind of heart are you to have? Jesus says you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Right? That's, the, that's the heart of a Christian. The desire of a Christian aligned with Christ. One who fears God and follows his commandments. It's not enough to make an outward show. So we've talked now about legalism, but let's talk a little bit more about coveting. What is, what is it really to, to covet? What is this talking about? You shall not covet, it says, your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. To covet is to desire something illegitimately or in an inordinate fashion. It's a kind of twisted longing for something, even, even you could say being overcome with that desire. For something wrong, or for something that is good, but desiring in it, it in a way that's wrong. Right? It could be either. This word for coveting is actually used positively at times in Scripture. Right? To desire things. You know, sometimes, you know, we might... We might say something like, I would covet your prayers, if you ever use that kind of a phrase. You know, we might say, well, look, we're told not to covet anything. That's not quite right. The Bible doesn't say, don't covet anything, don't desire anything. But you should not covet that which you should not desire, and you should not desire something in a way that is out of order, that is sinful in nature. That's what this is talking about. Say there's a part of this that's, that's envy. Envy's not, not maybe all of it, but that desiring of something in such a way that someone else wouldn't have it, that makes you want to take. There's maybe a part of this that is uh, a kind of lustful being overcome by desire. Or it would actually be better to say that envy or lust are part coveting. Right? There is a coveting element to these sins. Right? Imagine those times that you've been just overcome with a desire to have something. Maybe it's something that you know you shouldn't. Right? You desire something that you know you shouldn't. Or even when it's something you desire in such a way that it becomes an idol. It becomes everything. It becomes all that you will sacrifice for. And you'll sacrifice all for it. The New Testament tells us that coveting is idolatry. That coveting is a kind of idolatry of the heart. To not covet speaks to being content with what God has given. When, when you have that total discontentment with what God has given you. And there's something wrong with the way that you desire other things. You know, it was mentioned last week that when you sin, it's not the kind of thing that starts logically you don't start with kind of planning things out or thinking things out it starts actually with desire this is true of any time we we change our mind or we we decide to do something other than what we've been doing 
even if it's not sin. Right? We, we change as people based on our desires, our passions, our longings. That's how we're primarily moved. And that's because we're desiring creatures. We're worshiping creatures. We're, we're made to change in those ways. We're moved by our longing and desires. Even when you change your mind about you know, who you think God is, what he's like, or what you think he wants from you, what obedience looks like, right, how you should follow him, right, that, that always starts first by desiring something else, good or ill, right, this isn't all bad, but good or ill, we are moved by our desires, and so God commands those desires, he commands your affections, he calls you not to covet and desire that which would be wrong, because it will lead away from the truth. And likewise, on the positive side, that means that you are called to desire that which is good and right and to desire even more than you do otherwise. Why? Because that's what moves us to obedience, right? That's what, that's what moves you to worship. So the command not to covet is a command not to improperly desire good things, not to desire what you shouldn't, and positively a call to desire that which you should. So desire itself is not wrong, right? Again, coveting, we, we use the word covet in almost all negative contexts. Again, maybe once in a while, covet your prayers, something like that. We might, it slips out that we know that, you know, covet really means desire or long for, something like that. Uh, but we usually mostly use it in, in negative contexts. But it, it's not wrong to desire something to want something to long for something as long as it's a right thing and a right desire you're called by god to learn to desire things properly now most of the world around you will tell you that simply by desiring something it makes it right like desire is what makes something okay and acceptable and right what you long for, if you long for something, that makes it good and okay and worthy. The desire, emotion, passion, affection, or longing that, in a sense, sanctifies something for you, whatever it is. Right? It, it makes it natural and, and righteous or okay, at least. But that's not true. Yeah, it, you know, it, we might be able to say, well, when you have certain longings or desires or passions that's natural to you, we might mean that in a way that it, it's very personal, right? It's, it, it seems as though it's just a part of who I've always been. Maybe it seems natural in that way, but God, the one who made you, is also remaking you in his image. And so he says that you must change, even on that level. So it's not wrong to desire sexual intimacy that's good and a right thing when it's properly ordered. But when it's directed towards someone that it shouldn't be, someone of the same sex, when it's directed, as in our text, toward someone else's spouse, it's wrong. This is what we call lust. It's an im proper or, or a disordered kind of desire. It's not wrong to desire food, that's a good gift of God, but 
to be driven by, to be overcome with longing for it, that you might gorge yourself. We call this gluttony. It's not wrong to want to be uh, attractive or beautiful. It's not wrong to want to be aesthetically pleasing in how you look. But when that drives everything that you do, that's all-encompassing. It's all that matters. Well, then we call that vanity. It's not wrong to desire a, a glass of wine, but to be overcome with desire for it. We sometimes use the word, uh, the phrase of addiction, right? To be, be addicted to something, to be so overcome with desire for something like that. Well, this is drunkenness, right? All, the, all of these things, they have within Scripture a, a call to desire a good thing, a right thing. And yet, in our sin, it's twisted into a disordered desire. That's, that's what coveting is. Covetousness is often the taking of those good things, but allowing them to kind of burst their, their proper boundaries. They become disordered desires. They make us discontent in, in what God has given or called us to. And so this commandment calls you to a life of discipline, to fast and to pray, asking God, as James talks about, asking him to change your desires, that they might align with his, that they would be properly ordered, in proper order, under him. Now, maybe you're sitting here today, or listening to this, and you think, that can't be right. God can't command my emotions, or my, my affections, my desires, right? He can't do that. Well, he does. He just did, and he, he does it over and over again, right? So you will have to take that up with him, but he'll win, right? If you want to fight him on that, he'll win. He made you. Of course he can command our desires, our emotions, our thoughts. He can, he can command what he wants. We belong to him. He knows what we are and what we're for and what we're to be like because he's the one that made us. In fact, we're made in his very image. Maybe you think, but I don't have control over those things, right? I can't control those longings and desires. Well, maybe, and maybe not yet. Maybe you've not grown to that point, but that's part of what God wants to do in you, right? If you have been called by his name, that is part of you that he is sanctifying. And it's hard, right? These things don't change overnight. It's interesting if you, you know, follow the flow of Scripture and the way that God sanctifies his people. Really, he, he usually starts with those kind of direct, very um, outward forms of obedience and calls for those things, right? You, the, the obedience of the hands, we could say, right? The things that are maybe a little bit easier or, or the first step. This is what we do with children, Right? God's people, just like children, have grown up over time as he slowly revealed his word over time. And so too with children, right? We start with those commands of, okay, just don't do this thing. But that's not to stop there. The, the goal's not that, that that's it, 
the goal is that over time a child would grow to have wisdom and discernment. So where we have maybe, you know, the law in, given in this way, kind of a very direct, uh, outward, physical way, where in, in the, the Torah we have God's laws applied to the community in these, you know, uh, ways that are maybe a little bit more straightforward, right? You shall not murder. And then as, as God's people grow over time, we get to the wisdom literature, right? You get into Proverbs and you get to learn a little bit more about, well, what does that mean, right? How, how deep does that go? And actually it goes deeper than just, well, I didn't do that thing. And we see some of that already here in this commandment. God wants you to grow. He wants to change you. It will not happen overnight. Sometimes he does that, right? I, you know, I'm sure all of us have heard stories. I know, I know people who were living lives of, you know, uh, just, you know, crazy sin that you would think would be very difficult to change, and yet God changes them overnight, right? They, they accept Christ, and then all of a sudden they're different. They have different desires all of a sudden. That happens sometimes. It's not normal. It's not the normal way that God works. The normal way is that he takes you and he slowly over time helps you to grow into the kind of person that he wants. It's that long obedience in the same direction, slow change of desires over time. It takes years sometimes for a tree to bear any fruit. It doesn't mean it'll never happen. It just means that it takes patience and time. You were made to have your desires conformed to the person of Jesus Christ, and he will accomplish that. Right? When you set uh, some kind of food in front of a child and they say, I don't like that, I'm not going to eat it, uh, we expect that that will change over time usually. Right? We, we expect that there, there are going to be things that initially are, are difficult or foreign that will become something that they desire and want as they grow. This is true spiritually, too, that you were made to mature, to grow and change, so that your very taste buds, so to speak, right, your spiritual taste buds would be properly aligned to uh, what God wants. Now, again, in, in the West, it seems true that we often think of everything that is, that is inborn or innate, if we just have you know, a, a certain disposition from when we're young, that therefore, that's, it's unchangeable, right? But that's, I mean, that's like allowing a child to determine everything about what they're going to eat for the rest of their life, right? Well, that's, no, you help them to grow, right? You help them mature. You, you discipline over time. What we don't realize is that this, this idea that I can't change those innate things, or I, I, I can't change, right? They're unchangeable. It's a kind of claim to deity. Because God doesn't change, right? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is always the same because he's perfect. In his being, he is perfect. That's not true for us, right? To say that you can't change on the level of desires or longings would be to say in some way that you are like God. Now, of course, God has made you a particular kind of person, right, in a particular way, with particular gifts, right, with uh, different dispositions, with 
just different, right? I mean, he, he's made us all different to function in maybe slightly different ways. And yet, in you, he has made the person that he wants to train, to mature, to help grow over time as a father does with his child. You were made for that, not to just stay the same. Right? Someone who, uh, you know, grows up having never been disciplined, an adult who throws a tantrum like a child, you know, they can say, well, this is just who I am. This is just me. Right? This is just what I've always been like. And we can still say, well, that's because you need to grow, right? You need to grow up. You need to change. Just because you are a way doesn't mean that that can't change. Just because I desire certain things and I long for certain things doesn't mean that that can't change. And so as we draw to a, you know, a close of our time in the Ten Commandments, you need to recognize that Jesus wants your heart. God wants your desires to align with him, not simply in outward obedience, but inward as well. And this has always been the case. This has always been what God wants. As we see in the Ten Commandments, as we see elsewhere, um, if you want to turn with me, I want to read for us from Deuteronomy chapter 10. Now you'll know that in Deuteronomy we have uh, the the Ten Commandments given again by Moses in Deuteronomy 5. Uh, Deuteronomy means the second law, the second giving of the law. This is just before the people cross the Jordan River just before Moses dies and he speaks to the people, he reminds them of where they've been, all that God has done. He reminds them of the law of the Ten Commandments and and the laws that came from those Ten Commandments. He reminds them of a lot. Uh, One of the things that he speaks of, this is in in, uh, Deuteronomy 10, this comes just after the golden calf incident. And if you remember, Moses brought the tablets of stone that God had written the Ten Commandments on. He brings them down the mountain. When he finds the people in such gross idolatry at the bottom of the mountain, he breaks the stones, right? He throws them on the ground and they break. But God gave them again. He gave his law again. And so this uh, is in part uh, what is said after that giving of these new tablets of stone. This is uh, in Deuteronomy 10, beginning in verse 12. I'm going to read uh, 10 verses here. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep his commandments and statutes, the commandments and statutes, rather, of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. 
You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. God gives the new tablets, and as Moses is expressing this, he, he speaks of the law in maybe a different way, right? He doesn't go through it. I mean, he already has in Deuteronomy. Back in Deuteronomy 5, we're given the exact uh, or very similar uh, wording that we have in Exodus 20 of the Ten Commandments. But here, really, he's explaining the same thing. And what does he say? What is it all about? It's a call to love. To love God with all your heart and soul. The law is a law of love. The Ten Commandments are all about love. Right? If you don't see that in them, then you, you still don't understand. You're not quite there. It's all about God's love for you. He doesn't want to leave you in your sin, in your covetousness and disordered desires. He wants you to have a changed heart with new desires fitting for his people, his creatures. You can be the kind of person that you were made to be, that part of you longs for. The law is about God's love for you. And then in turn, it's also about your love for him. right? You loving him as he has loved you, responding in love. Because God has loved you, taking you out of slavery to sin, setting his love on you above all people. Verse 16 says what? Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Right? Here you get to the heart of things. The law has always been driving there to your desires, to your affections, to what you want. God's desire for you is not that you put on a good-looking exterior that you look like you really want to follow him and know him, but still have hearts that are far from him. He doesn't want you to just outwardly conform yourself to the law while hating it in your heart. He doesn't just want you to follow his standard. He wants you to love his standard, to love what he loves, to desire what he desires, to see the goodness in it and the glory in it, how right it is. Right, for you to be truly inwardly renewed. Now, the thing is that as much as Moses led the people, he gave the law, uh, he wasn't actually able to bring them into the, the fullest blessings that the law promised. He wasn't able to get them there. He would actually die outside of the land of promise, this representation of the, all the blessings of God that come from being his people with his law. And so another would have to take his place. And Joshua would rise up and he would lead the people into the blessings, right? Into the, the land of promise, the, the peace, the joy, the, the land flowing with milk and honey. This, this place that God had promised according to his word. But even this was just a shadow of what was to come. The people would once again break the covenant with God and lose the land. They would lose the temple. But just as God provided new tablets after they were destroyed because of the people's idolatrous worship of the golden calf, so too he was always going to provide a new Joshua 
One that would lead the people to a heavenly Mount Zion where they would not only have the law but have the Spirit of God dwelling within them, have new hearts placed inside of them. And this is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. He has given you hearts that can be conformed to him more and more every day, where even your desires are changed, where even what you long for is changed, your inward being being sanctified along with the outward man. So all things being given as holy and pleasing offerings to him who made you. All of you, all for Christ, that you being built up in him might not simply hear his law, but you would love it, and that you would love him by it. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful for your law. We're grateful for your word. We do pray that you would teach us to love it, to honor you by it, to live by it. That you would teach us how we might live by it, not uh, in, in a manner as to be noticed, but rather in a, a manner that would truly honor you. That our hearts and hands both would be in complete submission to you. That our desires would be properly ordered according to your word. May it be so. May you accomplish these things in us by your spirit. Amen.